Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, newsrooms are reeling after another round of deep cuts across both of the country's major newspaper publishers. The bizarre love triangle involving one of the nation's most popular radio presenters, the treasurer and the former PM. And we're looking at a new new startup that mixes reporting and ride sharing. Sound a bit weird? Well, keep listening and all will be revealed. Joining me in the studio is Crikey's media reporter, Emily Watkin. Hi, Emily. Hi. And the presenter of Channel 10 News in Sydney, Hugh Rimington. Hello, Hugh. Hello, Olivia. And joining us on the line is the Daily Telegraph's national political reporter, Kyla Lusikian. Hi, Kyla. Hello. It's been a bad couple of weeks for both of the country's major newspaper publishers. First up, a leaked strategy document revealed that Fairfax would be cutting up to 25% of metropolitan editorial staff in an attempt to save $30 million from its editorial budget next year. One week later, News Corp announced a restructure also involving considerable job losses, especially in photography desks, as the mastheads will move from in-house photography production to what a News Corp spokesperson described as a hybrid model with a core team of specialist photographers combined with freelance and agency talent. For Fairfax, the restructure aims to focus on news with wide appeal, outlined in the strategy as federal politics, state and local news, investigations, world, business, sport and breaking news. Non-focused topics such as entertainment, arts, travel, food, parenting, lifestyle and motoring will be covered via contributors and syndicated content. The strategy document also, albeit somewhat obscurely, signalled a shift to the right. It read, quote, Our pro-investor, pro-consumer view of business is central to our influence in the economic and business community. We believe in the merits of market-based solutions to economic challenges and an Australia that rewards aspiration and hard work. Fairfax staff have been outspoken in their rejection of this new direction. At a stop work meeting, they issued a resolution that read, we reject any ideological direction. We report the facts fairly and accurately without fear or favour. We call out the company's pernicious ideological interference and the fact that coercion was buried into their mission statement. Neither were the cuts swallowed well at News Corp workplaces. Editorial staff in Brisbane passed a vote of no confidence in upper management, condemning their failure to build a viable business, taking aim at their inability to manage paywalls. Emily, over the past few years, these kinds of sweeping job cuts have become regular occurrences. It's almost a wonder there are still people left in these newsrooms to get rid of. Surely at some point there has to be a limit to the pairing back of a newsroom that you can do. When will it stop? I mean, that's the million-dollar question, really. It's either when we stop printing newspapers altogether or when the newspaper organisations, these media companies, particularly News Corp and Fairfax, come up with a way to make money out of their newspapers, which is the problem that they have at the moment. They're, They're not making enough money to cover costs and they're saving money by cutting their newsrooms. Kyla, what do you make of the apparent shift to the right signalled in the strategy documents? Some have suggested it was inspired by the idea that the paper's reputation as a left-leaning paper had a negative impact on sales, or is it simply an attempt to fall in line as global politics seems to be leaning further and further right? Oh, well, actually, I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I have absolutely no idea what Fairfax management are thinking, but I think it's just bizarre to have that, that kind of like management interference with with journalism, look, there's no there's no doubt that Fairfax, 
you know, there's a perception, uh, at least amongst journalists, that it does lean to the left. I've covered several stories that are the same story, really, at the Telegraph and, and before that at the Australian, that the, that the Herald would have covered or the Age would have covered. And, and there certainly is, you know, a different point of view. But I just, I, I just can't understand why, what the commercial imperative would be to say, well, we should report from this angle and somehow we'll make more money. I just, it just doesn't really make sense to me, to, to be perfectly honest. Hugh, spokespeople for both Fairfax and News Corp issued earnest assurances that the cuts won't affect the quality of their publications. Do you believe it? Well, it has to, doesn't it? And I think the, the whole story here is that the model is collapsing in front of our eyes and it's going to disappear. So when does it stop? It, it never needs stop. It stops when this model gets uh, superseded by whatever the new models are in future. Uh, I think the business about the alleged directive is was a bit of a... It became a sort of a lightning rod for anguish people were feeling about loss of jobs, which is quite understandable, pain that people were feeling at the loss of jobs. The, the statement itself is not particularly you know, dramatic. They weren't, didn't signal to me a particular ideological shift in the paper saying that you're pro-investor, pro-consumer on business matters. You know, so what? I mean, that's, that's hardly taking a newspaper group into some uncharted territory. So I think I, I got the feeling that they needed something they wanted to, to shout at, to express some rage and pain, because it's a painful time to be in these newspaper groups, to be in the media generally. And, and that was something they, they could have a crack at. The Fairfax Press, by and large, is a progressive outfit. It marks its territory as being different to that of the News Corp, uh, or News Limited uh, stable. And each is defined essentially in opposition to the other. So they're going to occupy their own space and seek their own markets. But the reality is, is that, uh, you know, you've got a whole lot of people working in the media and newspapers and elsewhere who are like um, quite talented, hardworking horsemen in the age of the onset of the motor car. Times have changed. And I, I just think in 10 years' time, we won't be talking about newspapers. Can I just point out, I think there was actually some, some real truth in, in what Joe Aston wrote in the Financial Review when it came to News Corp's cuts of photographers. And of course, any loss of photographers of journalists is upsetting and, and, and it would be preferable, obviously, to keep as many people on as possible because, yes, of course, it does have, have an impact on the quality of the publication. But he was pointing out, for instance, that the Australian uh, and, and the News Corp papers, which had, uh, you know, I'm just taking his numbers as, as gospel, but had 25 photographers down at the Melbourne Cup, I think it was, last year. And then, and then the Oz ended up running a Getty Images picture on the front page. So if the proposal is that maybe we should keep a core number of photographers and then maybe buy in from others, I mean, that's kind of unfortunately become kind of a standard thing across the industry, whether it be Fairfax and the Australian as well, has obviously lost quite a lot of photographers. So they do the same thing. Um, it's not preferable, but I don't think the quality will be impacted so much, unfortunately. A, it's just a reality of, of how these newspapers work now. Yeah, and I think it also marks something else which is happening in general across the economy, and that is the, the removal of, if you like, uh, dedicated professionals and full-time jobs. Uh, so this, this is, goes to the, the freelancing, the tenuous nature of employment, because there will be photographers who will provide things. Getting user-generated content works for breaking news. You know, television stations have been using that now for years and increasingly tending to, to use it. But what I, you kind of miss out of the papers... And, and you lament it, it's probably gone forever, is the notion of the, of the wonderfully crafted piece of writing, often better crafted because a wily old sub-editor has gone through it and improved it, and also those not breaking news photographs, but the photographs that, uh, that just illuminate moments that have something special to them. And that requires a sort of a dedication to the craft and 
people who who have got the um, you know the security of employment to be able to dedicate themselves to the craft. And you look at some of the guys, for example, I worked out of Canberra for a few years, and and I was always amazed at some of these guys like uh, Alex Ellinghausen and uh, Andrew Mears and uh, and others who could take these pictures. There's a lot of human drama in politics, but it's not actually generally very visual, and yet they could find ways to just capture moments in ways that you know screeds of print sometimes doesn't. And and I fear that that will be lost from papers and, and be lost from, from our lives in a way. The New York Times has recently embarked on a global push for subscriptions with great success. The company added 514,000 digital-only subscriptions in 2016 with 276,000 of those, so more than half of them, added in the last three months of the year. While a large part of that can obviously be attributed to the presidential election and the outcome, uh, the Times has made a dedicated and concerted commitment to a subscription-first growth strategy, and that really seems to be paying off for them. Why can't Australian publications replicate that success, Kyla? Uh, well, I think simply because the New York Times is big. I mean, it, it, its base kind of readership in America is probably, what, a million plus or something. Uh, they have a massive base to build on already, and I think this is increasingly what's going to happen. You're going to end up with a couple of marquee brands, but everyone goes, oh, yeah, what's the, what's the best in the world? All right, New York Times or whatever it might be. I mean, it's the same for the Wall Street Journal, for instance, probably the same for the Financial Times, you know, among business readers. There are going to be, I think, I mean, it's obviously my personal opinion, but there are going to be a few marquee journalism brands that are going to exist because they have the reputation and they have the size and they can, you know, really, you know, they, they might put in two or three journalists in, in Australia, for instance, get several thousand subscribers. You know, that's just not, unfortunately, Australia's far too small of a market for any of the newspapers to do that here. And, and, and if they wanted to anyway, it's probably a bit too late because, you know, I, I don't really see any of them going overseas. Um, you know, I reckon maybe they, they could have tried in the, in the past, but it's, it's a bit late. But I think, I think more than anything, we're going to end up with a bunch of very good quality, you know, high quality, more expensive newspaper brands and at the same time a couple of tabloids as well they're going to be cheap easy to pick up you know lots of people are going to read them but the middle part is is really going to disappear because what's your what's your selling point i mean you've got international news you've cut all that out so people can go online and find that somewhere else you've also cut back on kind of local news so that you know no one's reading for that so i think there's going to be a polarization you're going to have good quality brands at the top and you can have cheaper tabloids uh, down the bottom Margaret Simons published a piece in The Guardian over the weekend positing that while the invention of the printing press brought about the Enlightenment, the end result of the internet and how it has disrupted the way we produce and consume information may plunge us into another dark age. Emily, do you agree? I don't agree, no. I think I think obviously there are downsides to the information age and the speed and you know, news organisations relying on Twitter and other unverified sources online and the obvious business model issues as well. I think there are a lot of issues that are leading us to a dumbing down. And I mean, just looking at some of the news websites, even if you compare the aged newspaper in print form to its website, you could argue that that is a very obvious and stark contrast between what we've got between the printed product and what we get online, what you can get for free online. But 
I think there is still a hunger for news. If you look at some of the coverage about Syria, I think um, lots of people are interested and do want to know what's going on in the world around them. And I think if there is really good journalism and really good pictures that tell stories and that move people and inform them about the world around them, I think people will use that. So in that same article, she also credited publicly funded media for creating more cohesive, better informed and less polarised communities. Hugh, as both Fairfax and News Corp flounder, is there an argument for increasing funding to the ABC and SBS? Just hold that for a second to go back to the Margaret Simon's notion about the Dark Age. And you've got to realise that the Age of the Enlightenment came without newspapers. Uh, There was no mass media when the Age of Enlightenment was being presented, there was a printing press. But essentially, the printing press served the needs of the elite. There were more Bibles being printed for one thing, but there were also all those scientific ideas were able to be circulated, and that was the thing which generated such a great degree of change. So the Age of Enlightenment happened without mass media. Mass media came effectively once there was the connection between advertising and news information. And the two of those came together maybe a couple hundred years ago. And what we're seeing now is the disaggregation of those two things. The advertising's gone off to Facebook and Google, and and we're talking now about what's left of journalism, but there's nothing to fund journalism. The, re- the revenue base is gone, which leads, segues nicely into the question about public broadcasting. Should we be spending more on public broadcasting and all the rest of it? Uh, an argument could be made if you stopped funding public broadcasting. I'm not making this argument, but if you were to stop funding public broadcasting, that audience would have to go somewhere and it would prop up commercial and, and perhaps sustain commercial broadcasting. And, and particularly seeing that people aren't just broadcasting, it's the, it's the digital world that the ABC in particular is advancing into. Michelle Guthrie's very keen as the, the new head of the ABC to occupy that space to the alarm of, of News Corp and others. Now, if you were to take the ABC out of those spaces, then there would be that chance to inhabit it and to get those eyeballs and, and readership back into, into the commercial world. The commercial world is being crowded out by public broadcasting. So you can make an argument, but you have to accept that it's a essentially a, a statist argument that public broadcasting should ultimately occupy all that space. You know, I'm a big fan of public broadcasting. I consume an enormous amount of public broadcasting. But at the same time, if you look at, for example, the American 60 Minutes compared with the Australian version of 60 Minutes, the American 60 Minutes is far more high-minded and serious and less meretricious, if you like. And that's because it's really occupying a space that's halfway to what Four Corners would be doing. Whereas in the Australian model, Four Corners is doing it on public broadcasting. So you need to occupy a different space. You need to compete for eyeballs. You need to have a slightly more sensational angle. And so you wind up with a different kind of a show. So if you were to you know, get rid of public broadcasting, which I don't advocate, but you would tend to see more of a sun, the old Sunday program that used to be on Channel 9, for example, uh, might, might reappear because the audience is looking for something of some more quality and there's no more public broadcasting. We have public broadcasting here. It would be politically ridiculous to suggest that it's not going to go away, even though it's obviously under challenge and all the rest of it. And you hope that it sticks around, but you cannot argue that it doesn't crowd out uh, journalism in the in the private sphere. But does it not provide something that is quite different in quality? And because with that commercial imperative does come a need to make something have mass appeal. And, and that's a pressure that ABC or SBS doesn't actually have, which does have a very strong influence on the way that they approach topics and indeed the topics that they even approach. Yeah, look, I think so. There's obviously a different personality that gets put to air between the ABC and say the network that I work for, Channel 10. 
Um, the same might go for nine or for seven. They're, they all compete in their different ways. But if you're pursuing eyeballs nowadays, the, the thing which seems to work best is either sport or these strip reality shows, whether it's My Kitchen Rules or I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here and these sorts of things. And the only reason they're being put to air is because they seem to be the ones that retain an audience. So we'd all love to be doing book shows permanently and be very sort of beard strokey and, uh, and, and, and highbrow. But you've got to go where the audience is. And so that's the nature of, of commercial broadcasting. You know, I, I could sing songs in praise of public broadcasting. But if you're looking at the future of media in Australia, the arguments that come from News Limited, who have been most vocal in this, no matter what you think of News Limited, they have some merit. They are being crowded out, particularly out of the digital space where future survival will rely by a state-run enterprise that has a totally different and far more secure revenue base. And uh, that's hurting, and that's that's hurting the people who are being laid off this week in Fairfax and News Limited. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Emily Watkin, Hugh Remington, and Kyla Lusikian. Last week, drama played out on Sydney's top-rating morning radio show when 2GB's Ray Hadley was jilted by his regular Monday morning guest, the Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison. Morrison told Hadley that he was not available for his usual appearance because he was travelling. When Morrison then appeared on ABC Melbourne with John Fain, Hadley cried foul, condemning Morrison and his staff for having lied to him. And Hadley told his listeners that the bromance was over. And I'm not joking, he actually did use those words. And then Hadley turned the whole affair into a bizarre love triangle, running straight into the waiting arms of former PM Tony Abbott. On Easter Monday, Abbott took up the recently vacated morning radio slot with great gusto, criticising his government colleagues for not doing their job well enough and warning listeners that there's a feeling in the community that Shorten will win the next election. Hadley has been singing Abbott's praise, hailing his first appearance on the show this week as an unprecedented success. So, where to start? Emily, is it appropriate that a radio host should be in a public bromance with a politician? Look, probably not, but I mean, it suits both of them and I, or it, it did until last week, but I I can understand why a government minister would get into that position if it was presented to them. Ray Hadley is extremely powerful. He's got a very strong voice in a in an area that's very important to the government so or to any politician. So I can understand why Morrison sort of got into that uh, position. As far as Hadley goes, I mean, why not? I, if he's got someone who's happy to come onto his show, I don't know many journalists that would, or broadcasters who, if they had an opportunity to have a senior government minister come in and do a, you know, 10 minute or 15 minute interview every week, that would say no. But. Except he brushed off the senior government minister. Well, he has now, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's that sort of happened when they started falling out and it turned from a very cosy interview segment. I don't know if you all remember back when Morrison was immigration minister and it was a very mutually respectful and praising relationship where they would basically just agree with each other for 15 minutes or so every week. And that has obviously changed now. But when this regular slot started, it was, I think they both found it very mutually beneficial. What Emily said is right. In fact, that show is the highest rating for the morning time slot in Sydney. Hadley is probably not a good person for a politician to offend. So why do you think Scott Morrison did it? 
Well, you know, it's, it, Scott Morrison is bound by all kinds of restrictions as the treasurer that uh, don't apply to Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott has the freedoms of the back bench. And so he was caught in the bind where he'd have to be sometimes mealy-mouthed. You can't always say things. If you have access to the information, the stuff that's going through cabinet, the things that you're not allowed to talk to under the rules of the Westminster system, cabinet solidarity, all the rest of that sort of stuff. And so a talkback radio host can go flat out on any subject he likes. And so he was being criticised for being inauthentic, I think, was uh, the polite way to put it, uh, that Morrison was a dud. That was a view that, uh, that Hadley was putting up there and that his own audience was getting annoyed by having Scott Morrison there. It's interesting about the Ray Hadley show because Labour Party people will say that the Hadley show and Alan Jones don't actually shift any votes. They don't matter. You know, if they, if they shift any votes at all, it'll be between One Nation and, and the coalition. But at the same time, it must be said that uh, uh, Bob Carr, when he was Premier of New South Wales, was very assiduous in courting Alan Jones. And he'd have staff there to take calls from Alan Jones and to listen to the radio station and get an answer back to Alan Jones before the show was over. And he courted and worked and they had a not so much a bromance as a kind of an endless uh, dance. It was like those uh, scenes from uh, La La Land where they'd just be swooping up through the uh, the starry heavens dancing with each other uh, to their mutual benefit. And good on uh, Bob Carr for being able to sustain that for so long. Look, these guys, I think it's a fantastically entertaining exercise. And I think one of the things about Ray Hadley, you've got to admire him. I listen to 2GB a fair bit of the time. It's it's entertaining broadcasting. It also gives you an insight into some of the things that are going on, some of the issues that are genuinely they will, they will ventilate that, that others don't. Uh, but the thing which is striking is the towering arrogance of these hosts, whether it's Alan Jones or Hadley. And I don't say that as a criticism. I think if you're going to occupy that space, you've got to be arrogant. You've got to have maximum swagger. You've got to blow off the treasurer. Who cares about the federal treasurer? To hell with you and be damned. And then go and put on someone who's who you know is going to fend the hell out of the government of the day, Tony Abbott, and say, right, we're in, we're going to be doing this every fortnight. You know, we're going to needle and get under the ribs of of the prime minister of the day, and and that's the entertainment. These guys are very good at their job. Kyla, do you think that this turn of events could be seen as Abbott perhaps setting things in place for yet another leadership spill? It's been, after all, 18 months since we've had one. Well, I don't think so. I mean, it wasn't his decision for Scott Morrison to turn up on ABC when he should have been doing Ray Hadley or when he was, you know, kind of scheduled to go on Ray Hadley. So I don't think, I think it just was a fortuitous turn of events, to be honest, that he got on that, on that program. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Emily Watkin, Hugh Remington, and Kyla Lusikin. An interesting new startup called Newscar is set to launch in Australian East Coast cities at the end of April. The app is sort of a mix of Uber and social media news services like Storyful or Newzulu. So, how does it work? When news breaks, let's say there's a fire in an office tower in Chatswood, Newscar would identify who in its network of drivers is closest to the scene. Those drivers will then be sent to the burning building where they will collect footage of the fire and stream it directly back to news organisations who have a Newscar subscription. Those news organisations will pay for the content and that money lands directly in the pocket of the driver. And at all the other times, they'll be ferrying passages around much in the same way that Uber does. The man behind it is veteran television journalist Adam Walters. And while he's starting here in Australia, he has his sights set firmly on the US where he plans to launch the service in June. Emily, what do you reckon? Is this a good idea? I actually don't mind it. I think it's 
innovative and I think every single night on most of the commercial news bulletins at least and often the ABC as well you'll see shaky footage of a car accident or someone abusing someone in the street or a house fire and it's vertical and you've got the black strips next to it and it's shaky and I think if there's an opportunity to have someone who has at least the knowledge to turn their phone around to be horizontal and hold it straight and that vision is going to be high quality. I I think that's a great idea. I mean, I'm really interested to see how it plays out and if it's successful. Apparently, there's already a few hundred Uber drivers in Sydney who've signed up. I, I think it's just a matter of waiting and seeing, though, how it actually works, whether you can use people that do not have any proper training and who don't really know the news business and whether that's actually going to improve the quality of vision that we see on the news when it's those sort of breaking news moments. But I, I think it's an interesting idea and I'm really interested to see how it um, how it works out. Hugh, do you think that a man or a woman filming on his or her phone suffices as a replacement for a news crew on the scene of breaking news? Damn sight cheaper <laughs> and they'll get there sooner. And I think that's the plan. And so I think this or something like it will succeed. You know, there are lots of wrinkles and, and there are apps that rise and fall every single day and very few of them are actually long-lasting successes. I wish them very well in what they do. I do feel for someone who's got an Uber ride and needs to be at the airport in the next uh, half an hour and suddenly <laughs> the guy says, no, hell no, I'm going to do this burning building first. There's money coming in. So, um, yeah, look, the, the cameras are, are getting more and more idiot-proof on phones uh, the idea that you can then stream it, I mean, the suggestion being that they will get a guy to hold a shot on something dramatic and, and then that will go live to air, you know, that subscribers to Newscar as a service will just fill their bulletin with, with a, you know, with a cabbie effectively <laughs> with, a, with an iPhone or a Samsung. But look, it's got, this is the way it's going to go. That what's happening here is that you have these remnants, legacy media organizations who are really just competing, and, and they're not much ahead of the pack of just anybody, you know, anyone on a Facebook feed or a YouTube feed or anything else like that. In a sense, these legacy outfits, which used to be very pompous about how they gathered news and they were the, you know, they were the gatekeepers and the guardians of truth and all, everything else, they're essentially just another outfit that's uh, aggregating, curating to a certain degree stuff that's coming in from the general public, the great howling noise that is out there, and, uh, and trying to get it to air and keep eyeballs on them. It's a, it's a mad it's a mad sort of Wild West race out there, and, uh, and this is just another manifestation of it. The app made me think of the movie Nightcrawler, and it made me wonder, is it a bad idea to give people a monetary incentive to rush to and film breaking news? Kyla? Maybe I'm coming at it from a print journalism point of view, but the whole thing sounds awful. I mean, if you want to pay for garbage, you're probably going to produce garbage, um, and it's one thing to replace you know, other people who are using their shaky hand cameras to do something. But why not, if you're actually serious about covering something properly, send out a crew like you should. Same for, you know, journalism with photographers. Same for journalists with citizen journalists. You know, if you want something to be covered properly, it's not like I just turned up in the newsroom and could write a story. And it's not like a photographer just turned up and could take a good photo I mean, it takes time and effort to hone these skills. And if you can't be bothered with doing that, then maybe you should reconsider why you're in the news business. Yeah, look, I totally agree with the quality question because you're not going to get one of these guys to go down and shoot a, a news conference or to go down and, and, and shoot a, a football game or something like that. There are enormous skills that are involved, but proximity and speed 
count for a great deal. The, the famous Zapruder picture of John F. Kennedy getting shot uh, yeah. didn't become historic in you know, because it was so perfectly shot. It was because it was the shot. And so we know this, that it's it's proximity and speed. It is the thing as it happens uh, is the thing that has the real value and that and that keeps people interested. And, and but, people will forgive all kinds of quality lapses. When you start getting them saying, hey, can that uh, news car, you know, can you get that Uber driver to go down because I need to pick up an interview with, uh, you know, you know, a mum whose kid's got meningococcal <laughs> you know, disease and there's a, you know, but I can't be bothered getting a crew. I don't have one. That, you know, just go and shoot it however the hell you like. I don't think those days have arrived yet. But the question will be, obviously, whether the value is enough for you to spend money on someone who's going to take a slightly less shaky photo than someone who's just going to be there. I mean, if a building is on fire, someone is going to take a photo of it. You probably don't have to pay them to do that. And you could probably just rip that off wherever it, wherever it appears. So it, I guess it's just a question of whether you're happy to pay for something that is of the same, of the same thing. I mean, someone was going to take a photo of JFK, of course. But now the question is, would you pay an extra 200 bucks for it to have been shot slightly nicer? You know, that's the question, I think. That'll make this thing work or not work. Yeah, and you raise a really important point there because the laws about this are based on times when, in fact, the media were these handful of outfits that had license to broadcast and so on. And there is this thing in the law called fair dealing, sometimes called fair stealing, which is where a news organization can take small amounts of newsworthy vision from a, a variety of sources and not pay for it. And you see this all the time where people lift stuff off Facebook sites. And, and the, the law on who owns those rights is is dodgy. So that, for example, let's just say there's a, a criminal case and 60 Minutes gets an interview with the victim and they've paid a certain amount of money. Other networks can take that. They can't run the whole interview, but they can take uh, what's considered in, in law to be a reasonable amount to indicate something which is newsworthy under the fair dealing system and not pay for it. So... Where this comes in a world where everybody has a camera and everyone's producing all this material is a very good point there, Garlett. Why would you pay for it? You can essentially, as a news organization, under the law still, I don't want to use the phrase, but kind of rip it off to a certain degree as long as it fits within that fair dealing rule. So that it would almost get to the stage where, let's say you've got this news car mob, one network puts it to air, another one hasn't bothered to pay for a news car, but they still see the stuff up on air and they steal it under a fair dealing claim. And this sort of gamesmanship goes on all the time and and uh, how that resolves itself the rights to the vision will be interesting as these sorts of apps take hold and i think it's worth also noting that there are news organizations as i mentioned like storyful and like newsula who have already built a very successful business model around licensing uh this kind of content now unfortunately that is all we have time for on fourth estate this week thank you to my guests emily watkin thanks for joining us emily thank you hugh remington thank you thank you and kyla lasekin thanks for joining us kyla Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. And if you already do subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show and it lets us know what you like and what you don't. And in fact, we don't actually have any reviews. And so I am hereby resorting to the only sort of bribery that community radio can stretch to. A sticker. I am here by pledging to send the first five people who leave us a review on iTunes a 2ACR sticker. Mm. My name is Olivia Rosenman, and you can catch us at the same time next week. <laughs> <laughs>